It's great to be able to gather with you on the Lord's Day and worship together. I want to thank uh, the worship team for doing such a great job in leading us into the presence of the Lord as we sing together. And um, that song that we just sang is a new one. And uh, really grateful for the, the rich theology in that song and the acknowledgement of how the Lord God has in all ways provided for our needs. He has given us earthly examples of, of holy people that can be to us uh, covenant heads and mediators and priests. But each one of those is pointing to the greater high priest, the greater prophet, the greater king of Christ. And so we are very, very grateful uh, for songs like this. Let us proclaim the things that we have come to believe because of what we read in the scripture and what the Lord has revealed to us. Before we begin, I just want to thank you, church, for being a church of prayer. So many of our brothers and sisters who are going through difficult times right now have reached out to me to communicate how much they appreciate you praying for them. So on behalf of people like the Williams family and uh, the Galvises who are here for the first time in a long time and, and Liz Stahl who's back after months of being away and uh, Jose Portillo and our friends who are in need of prayer right now, thank you for lifting these brothers and sisters up. Uh, they are constantly reminding me of how encouraged they are to know that their needs are not unknown. So continue to pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ. And uh, I'd really encourage you also, if you've not yet joined us on a Sunday evening, for our prayer and, and catechism service. It's a great time to come together and lift up those prayers at length. Uh, and thanks for what the Lord is doing and also in, uh, in request for His continued abiding strength so that we might be the church that He's called us to be. So thank you for your prayers, church. One of the attributes of God that we pray about a lot, but that perhaps we seldom hear preached about, is the generosity of God. We're often thanking Him for what He does in our prayers, but we also should think about the generosity of God. No one can give to us more than what our God has given to us and continues to provide for us every single day. He is generous without compare. The Lord gives when He should give, has every reason to give judgment and wrath. Instead, He gives grace. He gives love and mercy. He shows us incredible patience. This God that we love is a, is a giving, giving God. And there is no end to his resources. So he has all that we could ever ask for, he has to give it. But his generosity is not an impersonal resource. It's not like he has this great vault of blessing and we want to know him just so we can get to the vault. God gives because he wants what is best for us. He desires what is best for his church, for his people. And he wants his glory to resound in the world because his glory is the most true thing that there is. And so it is that we are ex, um, spending an extended time looking carefully at a particular and peculiar expression of God's generosity to his people over the last few weeks, and we will continue to do, do so through the next three chapters of 1 Corinthians as we put our eyes and our minds and hearts on the spiritual gifts that he provides to his people. So we are again in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I hope that uh, by now it is starting to become a little bit more familiar to you, this passage, um, these same scriptures have been the focus of our last two Sundays, but there's so much in uh, these verses that we're taking a third Sunday now to zone in and expound upon the specific gifts that are mentioned in this passage with particular focus on those gifts that endure to today. So we're in 1 Corinthians 12, and we're looking at verses 4 through 11. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as He wills. Let's pray and thank the Lord for the things He will teach us as we examine these passages today. Lord, we thank You for being mighty. And we thank you for the consistency of your scripture, Lord God. We thank you for the way that you approach us over the ages, always revealing yourself to us in ways that we can depend upon. And this written word that we have before us 
is like an anchor for our soul. We know, God, that when we are questioning or when we have doubts, that we can come back to this book and you will again show us who you are. You will outline for us what your good and perfect will is. You will show us how your church should conduct itself in worship. You will remind us, Lord God, of your great and sturdy promises, promises that are not fickle or based on emotions or feelings, but you, the mighty, impassable God, stands firm in being who you are, and when you declare it, it will surely come to pass. And so help us, Lord God, to be thankful for the ways that you provide for us, that you do not leave us as a people who have limits, who are lacking. You do not leave us without the things that we need to obey the commands that you have given to us. So let us trust in you. Let us find every resource in Christ. And let us rejoice when, against all odds, you use sinners like us to shine your glory into this dark place. And we praise you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. In our first look at this passage, we discussed the general nature of spiritual gifts, what they were for, and how they provide for us. Last week, Pastor Paul explained why some of these gifts that are mentioned in our passage are no longer given by the Spirit, and why the sufficiency of God's Word makes them no longer necessary. This is not the last that we're going to speak of these sign gifts, as the letter to Corinthians will address the overemphasis that they were struggling with on the gift of the tongues. And so we're going to have opportunities to speak even further upon uh, those uh, gifts that have ceased. But this week, our focus are going to remain on this same passage, addressing specifically the individual gifts that are mentioned in 8 through 10, which persist to this day and are a help to even this church right now. But before we expound on the list of gifts, look again at verse 11. And remember that it says, All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. When it comes to the spiritual gifts, church, we are largely along for the ride. This is something that God decides to bestow upon us at his discretion and to the degree that he sees we need it. So the passage is not suggesting that we can acquire spiritual gifts through some effort of our own. On the contrary, their manifestation begins with the Holy Spirit and the degree to which they will impact the church is all dependent upon His good and holy will, not upon yours. Our best approach then, as children of God, those who trust in Jesus as Savior, is to lead lives that are led by the Holy Spirit, to lead lives that are led according to the Word of God. That is our calling and so the Holy Spirit, as we are yielding to God and abiding in Christ, will work His gifting out as He sees fit. So we learn about the gifts, not to be more proficient in the gifts necessarily, but for observational and doxological purposes. We learn about these gifts so that we can recognize when God is using them among us, we can recognize when He has given them to His children, and then we can appreciate Him for His great generosity and obediently learn not to let these giftings, this generosity, go to waste. We want to use them for His glory. So this morning we're going to be talking about the nine gifts that are listed in verses 8 through 10. Now does Paul intend this to be an exhaustive catalog of the potential gifts that a person might possibly receive? And I can answer that confidently that most certainly that is not the case. We know that these are not the only gifts because in other places the Apostle Paul gives different lists. Some lists contain similar or the same things, and they all have different variations. Romans contains a different list given in a slightly different way. Ephesians 4 talks uh, about four or five kinds of gifts that might be given for the benefit of the whole church. In this letter itself, Paul's going to acknowledge other gifts that he doesn't bother to list here. So in each of the biblical lists, there are always variations, and that should show us that each is a list by way of example and not some exhaustive catalog of what is potentially available for us. As uh, commentator Gordon Fee writes, he says, the list of nine items is neither carefully worked out, nor is it exhaustive. It is merely representative of the Spirit's diverse ways of being present among them, which Paul calls a manifestation, so that the Corinthian believers will stop being singular in their own emphasis. See, there was a great focus upon speaking in tongues. And we're going to get to that in chapter 14. 
But Paul is very determined right now to help the people understand that because the gifts are of the Lord, we shouldn't be boasting in them. They should not be a cause for us to think more of ourselves than we do of other believers or less of ourselves than we do of other believers. And his emphasis is also on the fact that God gives these generous gifts in a variety of ways. So we should look to the great spectrum of what God does in blessing his church and providing for their needs. So the way that Paul cites these different gifts is, is telling. He could have just said, there's tongues, there's service, there's faith, there's knowledge, etc. He just, could have just made it a list. But he does not do that. Paul goes to the trouble of saying again and again, to some, the Spirit gives this. To some, the Spirit gives that. And then reinforcing the fact that each particular gift is a manifestation of the power of that third person of the Trinity. So the emphasis is therefore not on the specific gifts, but on giftedness itself. All the things that we spoke about two weeks ago in the intro to this series. Nevertheless, it can be helpful to look at this cross-section of gifts, knowing that Paul is basically giving us some examples that prove the diversity of the gifts the Holy Spirit gives, and to show that no one gift is enough. Just because you have one gift that everyone sees and can rejoice in God, and that doesn't mean that that person doesn't need the gifting that you have, and that the church wouldn't benefit from a, a different variety of gifts that God gives to other folks. So on the slide, uh, I have formatted verse 8 through 10 in such a way that we can see the individual gifts listed, and then I've broken them down into three categories for the sake of our study this morning. Uh, we're going to look at the first three, which make up gifts of the mind, and then we're going to look at the next two, which make up gifts of the flesh. And the last four constitute gifts of revelation. So let's begin with gifts of the mind, category one. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of understanding. We hear this not only in Psalm 111, verse 10, and Proverbs 9, verse 10, but we see the evidence of this throughout the scripture. As the people who seem to have the best wisdom are those who also proportionally have fear for the Lord. They have a reverence for Him. They are not seeing wisdom as something that is detached from God, but it is something that is given from the generosity of God. So we must have a belief in God and understand Him enough to know that He is judge and that He is powerful before we can have a legitimate hope for understanding of any kind. Not only the understanding of God Himself, but also understanding of the world that we live in. Without a proper fear of God, the world is going to make much less sense. We see that as the chaos unfolds around us. Brother James teaches us in chapter 3 of his letter that there are different kinds of wisdom. There is wisdom that comes from above, wisdom that is provided by the Father of lights, and there is wisdom that comes from below. In other words, there is something that passes for wisdom that is nothing more than the theories and ruminations of man who is trying to ignore that there is a sovereign God over all things. And so he urges us to seek this wisdom that is from above. Not all wisdom is created equal. The wisdom that benefits us is the wisdom that God provides for us. And it comes down through the revelation of his word. We can think also about Deuteronomy 6 where we read of the Shema, which is this foundational passage that sets up the framework for the old covenant. This idea that Hear, O Israel, the Lord the, your God, the Lord, He is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind. In other words, engage Him mentally, think deeply about Him, meditate upon Him with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. Now, this doesn't change when we get to the New Covenant. There's much new and different about the New Covenant. But this concept that it is supremely important that we love the Lord our God, with all facets of our being, including our minds, is present in both covenantal revelations. Universally, every true Christian has a kind of gift of knowledge that God has given to them. For it is only through the revelation of our sin and need for repentance that we can be saved in Christ. And friends, that's not something you will grasp unless the Holy Spirit gifts you that understanding. Before, if you're a Christian here today, before you walked in truth with the Lord, before you were reunited to God through mercy and grace, you were adverse to the things of God. You, you rebelled against them, either to an abject and open degree 
or silently in your heart. Perhaps you were raised in a Christian home where there were values around you all the time, but until you truly gave your life to Christ, there was a natural resistance in you against those things. It's not until the Holy Spirit opens your eyes and gives you a wisdom of holiness that you could not attain on your own that you begin to see your own sin as serious and weighty. It's not until then that you begin to understand that you are under the wrath of God and, and subject to His judgment unless you have Christ. So all of us, to some degree, have been given the gift of wisdom from God because without it, we wouldn't be saved today. Those who are Christians have received this gift. I was blind, but now I see. Not because I had some great teacher or because I worked it out in my head for so long, but because my dead spirit that was formerly blind and ignorant to the things of God was made alive when the Holy Spirit brought regeneration about in me. And now that same spirit that gave me the gift of wisdom to see my need for Christ abides in me as a Christian and lives with me, providing for me the other things I need to walk in truth and to live according to the things that spirit commands. So every Christian has some kind of spiritual gifting in the mind thanks to the Holy Spirit. But to some of those who are trusting in Christ, the Spirit chooses to give an extra measure of the following spiritual gifts that pertain to the mind. So in verse 8 we see that for to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. Wisdom is best understood as the ability to see what is best and what is right in a given situation and to do it, to apply that understanding in an active way, to, to know the difference between what is good and evil, to know the difference between what is best and what is okay or mediocre or wrong, and to be able to do those things. So the wise don't know everything, but they can take what they do know and they can apply it faithfully and reasonably by putting what they know into action. Now, when we think about what is best and we think about what is right, our culture has conditioned us to think that that is subjective, hasn't it? That what might be right for you, that's great, that's right for you, but it's not necessarily what's right for me. Doesn't right and wrong totally depend on our circumstances? And my response to that would be this. It only depends on your circumstances if you don't have a proper understanding of who God is. Because if you know that God is sovereign, if you know that God has a determined will for people, if you know that God is omniscient and He knows all things, and that He can never do what is wrong or wicked, and if you know that that God has given us instruction for life, then you will see that what is best and what is right is not dependent upon public opinion. It isn't a matter of pragmatic practicality. It is a matter of identifying what God wants and working towards obeying that. Now, it is easy to forget these things. Because of this culture that we live in, it's really easy to think that, well, it depends on what's going on in my life right now. And as things change, if you think that way, your faith will drastically change with those things. Can you imagine what it's like to be an Afghanistan believer right now? I was opening up a bank account with my son at a branch, a Chase branch here this week, and Martella was kind of sharing that she's from Afghanistan. And I said, I'm really sorry for what's going on with the people over there, is your family safe? And she shared about how her mom is, is not safe. They don't know where she is. They can't get to her. Um, and all the banks are closed. She's been sending money to her mom, but all the banks are closed, so she doesn't know if she has food to eat. There's great unrest and trial in that place. And I can imagine that if you are an Afghanistan national, or if you are living in Afghanistan as a missionary, then your life just got tremendously more stressful but your gospel didn't change. It didn't. And the scripture that is your anchor and your hope still beckons you to trust the Lord God. So our Afghanistan brothers and sisters who are there have to face the reality that living out the faith that they must now cling to and they must not abandon, living out that faith may come with drastic consequences. I, I can't imagine how tempting it would be to think, well, maybe, maybe I can just for this time, while it's difficult, maybe for this season, while it's really dangerous to be a Christian, maybe I just take my faith underground and I just, I don't talk about it at all. I just, 
You know, maybe I even, if somebody asks, say, no, 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 I'm, I'm Islamic. I, I, I worship Allah. Maybe I could do that just to survive. But that would be dishonoring to the Lord God. That would make morality, that would make right and wrong something that's completely subjective and based on the moment. But what is right and what is wrong is not just based on our circumstances. It is founded in the nature and the character of God, who is himself good. Remember, these gifts are a manifestation of the Holy Spirit's power for the common good. At each step, we should consider how these gifts are a blessing to the overall body. One who is gifted by the Spirit in the area of wisdom is especially empowered to share that wisdom with other members of the body of Christ. They do that through counsel. They do that through direction and guidance. These are the brothers and sisters that you can go to, not because they get you, not because they understand your emotions and how you feel, but because they know God's word well. They know it well enough to help you identify how that good and trustworthy word can help you to navigate through whatever situation you're dealing with. How do we respond to the challenges and the conundrums of life? We respond with wisdom, don't we? We respond humbly, courageously, and with the wisdom of God. For example, do you, do you remember the challenge that was faced by the early church in Acts chapter 6, where as the church began to grow, you, you had this whole contingent of Christian believers who had professed Christ, and, and they were Hellenistic believers, which means that they were not a part of uh, the, the Jewish believers that had endured for many years and had a, a place within the, in, in the tribes, and so they were often overlooked. And these widows were being overlooked in the distribution of food for those who had needs. And so the apostles, they said, listen, we can't spend all of our time making sure that food gets on these tables. It's important to us, but we can't do this work. And so what did they do? Acts chapter 6, verse 3. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Full of the spirit and full of wisdom. And these men who, these elders and the people identified as having that spiritual gift of wisdom, they were chosen for the task of, of being deacons, of serving in the church and looking after the needs of those who were vulnerable and, and, and needed help. They needed that wisdom because they were going to have to make decisions about the resources of the church. They were going to have to determine whether needs were real needs or perceived needs. They were going to have to make some difficult choices. And so these men, upon whom was the obvious gift and blessing of wisdom, were put in these positions to serve faithfully. Some wisdom may come from experience. The older brothers and sisters among us are often, though not always, are often able to apply the experiences that they have, uh, they've, they've been shown by God in their own life in such a way that their wisdom and knowledge they have gained over the years can be a blessing to others around them. They've been there. They have done that. They've walked through that path before. Sometimes they've made mistakes and they don't, don't want you to have to make the same mistakes. And so through their shared experience, they can give you a wisdom that you haven't earned through time, but has been a gift for, to that person through the Spirit and then to you through their love for the church. But here we see that even apart from having experienced something ourselves, God can grant to a believer the spiritual gift of wisdom, which is a Holy Spirit-driven ability to help people to see what would be the best course of action in a given situation. By example for that, let's look to the Old Testament for a minute, to the book of Job. When Job uh, was afflicted with his trials and tribulations, he loses almost everything and his body is in shambles. Three of his friends come and sit with him. Now they are likely the same age as him. These are also men who are considered elders, in other words, keepers of wisdom and, and those who are consulted often in the community. They came and sat with him. And then as the book unfolds, you see these men who should have had wisdom not being very wise in the way they deal with Job and his affliction. They want him to confess what terrible sin he's committed so that they can prove that he's getting what he deserved. But in reality, what they don't see is that Job is simply going through a trial, not because God doesn't love him or that God is angry with him, but because God wants to display in Job, his faithful servant, true dependence and endurance in the face of trial. So now near the end of the book, you have this young man come in. His name is Elihu. And when you read about Elihu's perspective and contribution to the conversation, Elihu even admits up front that he's younger than the other men. 
So he was quiet for quite a time. He allowed their experience to hopefully be used for the benefit and blessing of Job in his situation. But having heard a lack of wisdom in them, he now has to step forward and share from his knowledge of the word. Even though he's young, he's familiar enough with God's word that he has something good to give to Job and to the body of believers who now read Job and are, are learning from that. So Elihu wasn't the oldest man in the group, but what he said had the most wisdom and was the most grounded in the truth. Although it might be better to even just go to the New Testament here, since the Holy Spirit functions differently now than it did back then to some degree, we could look to Timothy. In 1 Timothy 4, verses 11 through 12, Paul says, Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. So what Timothy lacked in age and the requisite experience that comes with age, God made up for in him through spiritual gifting. This young man was able to see the truth and apply it. And so Paul exhorts him to use that gift in such a way that the church that he was at, Ephesus at the time, would be blessed by his leadership and his example. He might train other men, even men that were older than him, to go to the word of God and to see the truth and to live boldly according to it. So wisdom given by the Holy Spirit is not a trophy. It's not some prize to be polished and put on display so that others can see how great you are. It is a tool by which a congregation might avoid foolishness and might not step into the pitfalls of error. The wise give counsel. They help a believer who's seeking direction from the word of God. Those made wise by the Spirit are to be like search engines of a sort. I know today often our culture is inclined to, every time you have a question, just pick up your phone and try to Google things, right? But we've been given people here in this congregation, men and women who have a wisdom that comes from above, a wisdom that will point us back to the truth of God. And we should make use of that resource, friends. When you are struggling with a decision that you have to make, whether it's financial or relational, whether it has to do with uh, what's best for your course in the future, or how to undo a wrong that you've done, go to a brother or sister in Christ that you, you can see has that gift of wisdom and confide in them. Ask for their prayers and listen when they give you feedback. They will help you to see what the Word says. and They'll point you to the scriptures that you need to live in a way that's glorifying to the Lord. So wisdom is, a, is an essential gift to the church, but there are others to consider. Another gift that the Spirit gives often, which falls in the category of the mind, is the utterance of knowledge according to the Holy Spirit. Now you might ask that question, how is knowledge different than wisdom, right? And admittedly, they're very close and they're often used interchangeably, but in the canon of Scripture, there are some nuances to these two words. Clearly, they're of the same category, but they have slightly different emphases. Knowledge is an accumulation of information that is useful for life and godliness, gained through experience, through reason, or through association with those who know. So you can have knowledge, but not necessarily have wisdom. It's really impossible to have wisdom without some kind of knowledge. But there are those who are very wise, even though they don't have a lot of accumulated information yet, not a lot of knowledge, but they're, they're shrewd in the way they put what they know to practice. There are others who are vastly knowledgeable. They could tell you many things, but they're not as adept at putting that into practice. They don't know how that rubber meets the road necessarily. But nevertheless, this knowledge, this accumulation of information is good for the church. And there are some who are like reservoirs of knowledge that we can go to, and they remember those verses that we so often forget. They remember the history of the church well. They, they can think back to discussions which have forged the theology of the church over the centuries, and they can give us great reference to things that have occurred before so that we're not constantly reinventing the wheel. In chapter 8, many Corinthians had knowledge, so says Paul. They had the knowledge that an idol was not necessarily a rival god to Yahweh. Remember we talked about food that was sacrificed to idols. They knew that really there wasn't a god behind the, the temple of, uh, of Apollos. Aphrodite wasn't truly this rival god fighting for the glory that should be going to God. It wasn't a true god, but their wisdom was lacking. So 
Paul has to correct them because though they know the right things, they're still going back to these pagan festivals and they're, they're partying with these secular folks in such a way that they're falling into the sin patterns that they're creating. And so they, they lacked wisdom. They had good knowledge. The theology was there, but the practice wasn't there. They were eating meat that was sacrificed to idols right in front of weaker brothers and sisters that didn't have the knowledge they had. And because of a lack of love there and a lack of wisdom, they weren't considering the hearts of those that they might be causing to stumble through that practice. So while the Corinthians bragged about having wisdom, they were likely more gifted in that area of knowledge uh, with a need to grow in godly wisdom. So you might remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4 through 7, chapter 1, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking any gift. So he's acknowledging here that there was a lot of knowledge, a lot of know-how. There's some studious people there in Corinth, but they really needed some practical advice on how to put that into play and to let their knowledge be tempered by love and grace. Thinking is not everything, church, but it is undeniably important. Thinking is, by the way, to our opponents, to our enemy, the battlefield that he chooses to do his most destructive work. If the enemy is the deceiver, his strength relies on your weakness in knowledge and wisdom, doesn't it? The more you familiarize yourself with the book that's on your lap right now, the more it becomes like the way that you think and in the standard by which you live, the less effective the deceiver is at twisting up your thoughts and tangling you up in half-truths and lies. So it makes sense for us that God would provide people in our church that have the gifts of wisdom and knowledge so that they might be like a help to us to strengthen the rest of us, that we might not stay in the dark, that we might not stay spiritual infants, but that we might grow. If you will not think, the enemy will gladly lead you to foolishness. And perhaps that's one of the reasons why what is called the church in the world today is so easily dissuaded from the truth because there's this epidemic lack of thinking among believers. We, we have no longer valued those among us who do have the gifts of wisdom and knowledge. And instead, we've just thought, well, we can just do this by ourselves. We can figure it out as we go. And so Christians are shooting from the hip, and they're not thinking carefully about their God or about the, the will that he has for the church. Hopefully, if we have to go through hardship in this new season that has come upon us, then that hardship will catalyze in our hearts, a desire to value wisdom and knowledge like we haven't for the last few decades. Now let us uh, take a, a minute to acknowledge that these two gifts are described differently than the rest of the gifts. They have a word in front of them, and that word is literally word, that they are a word from the Lord of wisdom, a word of knowledge. The word there in the Greek is logos. That might be familiar to you, right? Jesus is the word who's taken on flesh. So this word that is given is a benefit, but it is a benefit that is, it needs to be communicated. Right? If you have the gift of wisdom, you've been given this knowledge not just to keep it hidden in you, but so that you might share that word with other people. We do that through preaching. We do that through teaching one another. We do that through mentoring, grabbing somebody else who's kind of a few steps down the road behind you and helping them to grow and to progress in their faith and trust in the Lord. We do that from parent to child as we give our kids what God has given to us. We do that from husband to wife, as we are called as men to sanctify our wives and wash them in the water of the word like Christ does his church. We do that from elders to younger. You know, I'm so grateful that we have a good cross-section of ages here. I, I, don't, I don't really feel comfortable with a church where everyone's within 15 years of each other's age. That's, that's not how the church is supposed to look. God wants age diversity in our church so that those who are older can come alongside the younger. And the younger need to learn how important it is to know folks who have walked the road before them and to, to respect their experience and to benefit from the blessings that God has given to them. And since we are discussing spiritual wisdom and spiritual knowledge, then these two things can come from sources you don't always expect. For the messenger is not the focus, is it? The spirit that provides the gift is the focus. And so from time to time, we will learn from the mouth of babes, won't we? 
We will hear something profound from somebody who's just walked in the faith for a short amount of time. The Spirit can use anyone among us to share the truth. So let us not discount something that someone says just because they are younger or just because they don't have a biblical office. But let us always let the Word of God, the Scripture, be the standard of what is wise and knowledgeable. So if someone shares wisdom with us, as long as it coincides with the Scripture, then we should rejoice in that wisdom given. A third gift of the mind is the gift of faith, given also by the same Spirit. Now, faith is not so much the ability to know, but it is the capacity to trust what God has made known. So when we think about Hebrews chapter 11, which is often referred to as the Hall of Faith instead of the Hall of Fame, when we read about these brothers and sisters who listened to the Lord, they learned from Him, and then they did what they needed to do in obedience to the Lord. They're not necessarily always the most educated or knowledgeable people. They're the people who took what God had shown and they walked forward with it. They stood in the truth. They put it into action. Faith is applying wisdom and knowledge in committed obedience despite opposition or reasons to fear. That's what faith is. Some have suggested that faith might belong more in the category of the miraculous that we're going to look at in a minute, the gifts of the flesh. They look to chapter 13, the next chapter in 1 Corinthians, and they read there, I could have faith enough to move mountains, but if I have not love, you know, it is worthless. And they might say there, well, look, that faith is a mountain-moving faith, so maybe the faith that they're talking about here in chapter 12 is the faith that is so strong that you can do miraculous things. But that would make it somewhat redundant with the next category, which is healing and, and miracles. And I think here where it just says faith, we owe it to the text to be faithful to the text where it sits and to see it as it is. So without a qualifier saying that this faith indicates an ability to cast miracles or do things that are supernatural, then we need to think of faith as the average believer thinks of faith, as a trust that leads to obedience and to action. What has been made known to us is not complete. God has not shared his complete omniscience with us. He has told us he is omniscient. But he has also made it clear to us that we don't have the capacity to know all that he knows. And so he will not give us everything we want to know. There are times when he will give us just a sliver, a piece of the puzzle, and he will call us then to walk on faith in obedience to what information that he has given to us. He says he, he who says he cannot obey until he fully understands is a case study in inconsistency. You know, there are people who say, well, I've got to know. I've got to have the proof. I've got to understand every detail before I can trust. But we, we as human beings, whether you're a Christian or not, you live in a constant faith, uh, state of having to operate in faith. Now, we often put our faith in, in things that don't deserve our faith. When you go out into your car today after church is done and you turn the key, you have faith that there's going to be a spark, there's going to be compression, and that engine's going to turn over. And you're going to have faith that you're going to drive that car to your house and that when the little hand says that you're halfway through empty and full, that means you've got enough gas in the tank. You're going to have faith that if you get hit, the airbags are going to blow up in your face. You don't know how all that stuff works, do you? There might be a couple of you who can describe the inner workings of the automobile that so many of us uh, care about on a day-to-day -day basis. Steve's not one of them. I know many of you are not one of them. You call me and you say, Pastor Nick, uh, broken on the side of the road. Well, I do, Okay. <laughs> <laughs> most people don't understand how a car works but you put your faith that it's going to work right so to take this stance that I won't act on faith unless I can completely understand is a lie we are all people who must act upon faith and so as believers in Jesus Christ let us act most ferociously on the faith that he has given us in him not on the faith that we have in our government or in medicine, or in our, even our, our culture, or in our own abilities, but let us act with faith upon the things that he has revealed to us. Brothers and sisters, don't we need examples of faith among us? Isn't this a gift that God needs to give to our church? Aren't those who have been given an extra measure of his faith, of faith by the Spirit, a sweet gift to us? There are probably two or three people you can mention right off the top of your head who have been such a blessing to you, 
Because when you're shaky on things, when you begin to doubt, when you start to analyze too deeply and, 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 and think of all the variables and the worst case scenarios that can come about in your life, there's somebody in your life that comes along and just puts their arms around you and says, God is good. You're going to be okay. Somebody of faith who just comes and says, remember this promise. Look at the scripture. Remember the promise that God has given. Or they come up to you and they say, brother, don't you remember when God was with you last year and you were struggling with that thing and, and you were so anxious? And then after you put all that energy into stressing out, the Lord just resolved it and you didn't have anything to worry about at all. That could be true of this case too. Let's just, let's just thank the Lord for what he is. Let's believe that he's going to walk us through this. You probably know a few people in your life that are like that. And God has blessed this church with some wonderful examples of just beautiful and steadfast and enduringly faithful people. And as they bless others with their example of faith, do not resent that faith. Do not think, oh God, why haven't you given me that faith? But instead say, thank you God that you've given my brother or sister that faith because it's a blessing to me right now when I need it the most. As I look at them, I see that I could also be a person of faith and it makes me remember the promises upon which I stand. When the enemy tries to sow doubt in our hearts and multiply our fears, those with the gift of faith come along and they give us a scripture to remind us that the outcome rests not on us, but on the Lord that we worship. So those three gifts, I think, belong in this category of the mind, but there are two other categories we're going to look at, and some of it we're going to look at briefly because uh, Pastor Paul faithfully preached recently about this. Uh, last week he talked about how several of these gifts are no longer manifesting in the church because they're not necessary anymore. Because we have something that the early church did not have. We have a canonized scripture. We have the full testimony of the New Testament that reminds us that God has given us everything we need to, to grow in maturity to the measure and stature of Christ himself. And so because of our great faith in the word of God and our belief that it has what we need to rest assured, to walk forward confidently in faith, we don't see the need for these gifts. These gifts that because they are a, a blessing from the Holy Spirit, God would still be giving to us whether we ask for them or not. See, God is the giver of gifts. So if, if these gifts, these prophecy gifts, and these gifts of the tongues were still active, wouldn't the faithful men and women of the church, at least some of them, exhibit some of those gifts? So Paul did a great job of helping us make sense of that last week. The Apostle Paul does not try to be too technical when he addresses the spiritual gifts. And we mentioned that at the beginning of the sermon today. Most important to him is evidenced by the amount of emphasis and repetition that he uses in these verses. Most important to him are the fact that the gifts are of the Spirit, that they're not our own. They don't come from us. They come from above. Okay? Secondly, that the gifts are diverse, that there's many of them, a broad range of them, more than are probably listed in the Scripture. He cares that we understand the gifts are useful, that they're for the help of the church. And he also cares that we realize that every believer gets gifts, that no one is left out in this equation. That's not all in your notes. This is just a recap from a couple weeks ago. But that said, there are some distinctions worth noting that might help us as we try to understand how some gifts play out differently in the current phase of the church. So a gift can come in, in some different ways. And let's take a moment just to consider that. A gift from the Holy Spirit can come in the form of an ability. And that's the way we think of it most frequently. So if you are given the gift of mercy, you are spiritually empowered to be more merciful than you would otherwise be able to be merciful. If you're given the spiritual gift of serving, the Spirit's going to make you quick to jump at an opportunity to help somebody out. They're going to give you the physical gifts to serve in strength. They're going to give you opportunities to stand by your brothers and sisters. They'll free up your schedule so that you can be there to help them when they are in need. If you have the gift of faith, then that is ability that's going to stay with you. Not every moment of your life, but God will consistently use you as a faithful person because he's given you this ability to do what the church needs you to be doing. We tend to focus most on abilities, but it's not the only form of spiritual gift. And even when a person is given an ongoing ability that we can use to frequently bless the church, we need to be cautious that we don't start to associate the gift with that individual. But we remember that it is still an ongoing gift supplied by the Spirit. Okay? So that's one kind of gift, a gift of an ability. 
The second kind of gift can come in the form of a person. And we're not going to study these in depth, but if you look at Ephesians chapter 4, then it talks about four or five what we call doma gifts in the Greek. This is a different form for the word of gift, or the use of the word gift. It's not charismata, which is what we're talking about here in 1 Corinthians. Uh, but these individuals are seen as gifts to the church. Now, that's not meant in a prideful way. But God will set aside certain offices and certain individuals to be an ongoing church in a very focused and, and uh, concentrated way. So some of those gifts, the people gifts, are no longer here to bless the church, are they? Because we don't have apostles that have seen the risen Lord and can testify from firsthand knowledge that he rose from the dead. So we don't have apostles anymore. But we do have evangelists. We do have teachers and shepherds. And in a moment, I'm going to argue that we do have some sense of prophetic gifting in our church in the people who preach the word with boldness and clarity. So you can have a, a, a gift that is an ability bestowed upon a person. You can have a person that is literally their life is given to the church as a gift to bless the church. And then you can have a, 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 a kind of gift that uh, has, uh, is delivered to us in the form of a circumstance. Now, I, I think healing and miracles, which belong to this category of gifts of the flesh, they, they would fall into this category of circumstance. I don't believe that when someone was gifted as a healer in the New Testament early church, that they could just go around and heal whoever they wanted to. I believe that in certain times and in certain places, God would use that person and would pour out a spiritual blessing of healing when the Spirit so desired. But if we had people today that had the spiritual gift of healing, and if it was an ability, then as was mentioned last week, wouldn't we just send them into the COVID wards? Wouldn't we just have them laying hands on people and, and healing them left and right? We could be the Christian solution to this pandemic, right? But that's not the way the gift of healing happens today, and I don't believe it was entirely the way that it happened back then either. I believe there were certain gifts that were given in circumstances that highlighted the grace and the peace of God and verified the miraculous nature of Christ's ministry and the voice of the apostles. So even those who were given the gift uh, of healing, namely the apostles, exercised those gifts not at their own will, but at the discretion of God. And if you go back and, and do a, a study of the healings that happen in the New Testament, almost all of them are done either by Christ or by one of the apostles. That's what you're going to see. That the consistent testimony is that these men, who are no longer with us in a physical sense, they were the, the stewards of that special gift of healing. They were the ones that conducted the vast majorities of those sign miracles that proved the validity of God's outward ministry. Because the office of apostle has ceased, and with it the prime vehicle for miracles and healings in the early church, we don't see that as much today. But God still is able to give these gifts through certain circumstances, even if they're not identified today with one office or with one individual. So we still pray for miraculous healings, don't we? If you come on a Sunday night, we're praying that the Lord will help Lori, Rebecca's sister, that she will be healed from cancer. We would love to see that. We would pray that God would would overcome Jose Portillo's cancer, that he would make him perfectly well again. We pray that knowing that it is his discretion, whether he wants to answer our prayers in that way, but that he will do his will in Jose and in Lori and in every believer in such a manner that we're going to be blessed by that, to see their faithful testimony and to see God's will unfold in their lives. So applied to healing, we understand this as a solution to a physical problem that might not come from science or medicine, but by the sovereign authority of God, applied to the creation that he rules, usually through the presence of one of his saints. And it is very, very rare in the New Testament. It's even rarer today. But can God completely heal? Absolutely, he can. Um, this healing was, accomplished, was to accomplish the will of God, not to accomplish the will of man. And today, the idea of this gift of healing has been grabbed hold of by many who want to suggest that God does not desire for any of his people to suffer whatsoever. Friends, that is, that is a huge mistake. We have been warned and told that part of our faith in Christ is going to subject us to suffering. When we say yes to Christ, we become an enemy in many senses to the world that we live in. And the people around us are not going to applaud our decision to trust the Lord God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength. But rather, they're going to see us as the opposition. They're going to make us look foolish. They're going to try to marginalize us we're going to get sick. We're going to get arrested. We're going to get thrown into jail. 
that's okay, friends. It doesn't mean that the Lord God is not loving us properly the way that he should. And it doesn't mean that we're necessarily lacking faith. So don't let somebody hijack this idea of the gift of healing and make you think that if the Lord loves you, he will heal you. There is a sense in which that's true, but that happens when he comes back and takes you home, or that happens when your time here on earth is done and you are healed completely and given an eternal body fit to worship him forever. Applied to miracles, we see that healings and miracles are in the plural in the Greek. It says that the Spirit gives the workings of miracles or the gifts of healing. And so Paul might be indicating here that these healings and miracles are single instant gifts, not a gift such as faith, which was in the singular and is given once and endures in a person. We do read of examples of miracles in the New Testament accounts. Paul pulls a poisonous viper off his arm at one time and throws it in the fire. All the people see him get bit by that viper and and these non-believers that are around him to whom he's preaching, they say, oh, this is clearly a a sign that he's not from the Lord. God allowed him to be bit by a viper. And they sat around and waited for him to puff up and swell, you know. It's like those fail videos that that human beings in their depravity like to watch. Other people failing. They sit around, they watch him, and he doesn't swell up. And he doesn't pass out. And he doesn't start foaming at the mouth. And so their idea of what he is completely shifts. And instead of saying, oh, this man's not from God at all because God let him get bit by a snake, they say, this man is a God. He's one of the gods come down to be with us, which is an error on the other side of the ledger. And so what does Paul do? He does the faithful work of just proclaiming what is true, that he was not God, that he was of God, sent of him, commissioned by him, but that the attention and the focus needs to be not on these missionaries, not on these apostles, but on the God that they represent. We do read of examples of miracles in the New Testament accounts, uh, such as, um, there's another one I was going to mention. Oh, the casting out of demons. When uh, Jesus sends out his 72 men to go to the different communities around and do some pre-preaching to kind of till up the soil and get them ready for Jesus to come and preach the gospel to them, they were able to cast out demons and perform miracles. But remember in Luke 10, 20, when they came back to him and they're marveling at what God had empowered them to do, what does he say? Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So the emphasis was not on their ability to do something great, but the fact that they belonged to a great God, a God who had saved them and was using them for eternal purposes. In Acts 2, 45 and in Acts 5:12 many signs and wonders are performed among the people at the hands of the apostles. Were these miracles primarily performed to woo people to the faith, to make them believers? They were not. Typically these signs were done in conjunction with a faith that was pre-existing. Somebody who had faith in the Lord and was calling out to him was healed by these apostles as a sign to those who were watching and skeptical that the testimony of these apostles was a real testimony, that it had teeth, that it was truly from the Lord God. In fact, many who saw a miracle disbelieved and asked for another miracle, thinking that would make them believe. But in reality, belief comes from the Holy Spirit itself, not from some extraordinary event that is witnessed by the eye. So signs and wonders have their place, but no sign will turn a heart if the Spirit has not breathed life into that heart. These wonders belong more to the historical and legal record of Christ's validity than they do to the tool belt of the evangelist who aims to save souls. So that's the category of the flesh. And I wish I had a better name for that. I just mean by that that these are are gifts that manifest themselves in, in physical ways, like through healings or through miraculous signs and wonders. The third category that we will look at this morning is the gifts of revelation. Now this category is described as revelation because these gifts have to do with showing others what God has revealed of himself and doing it in a way that is outside the conventional means of grace. Now, what I mean by that, the conventional means of grace are things like preaching, preaching of the established scripture that we have before us. The regular means of grace, the conventional means of grace, is the conviction of sin and guilt that the Holy Spirit brings upon us when we break God's law. It is the softening of the heart towards the gospel. It is the pictures of Christ's gift in baptism and in the Lord's Supper. These are the regular means of grace. The gifts of tongues and interpretation of tongues are effectively ceased, along with the bringing of new revelation. 
But there are elements of this category of gifting that has indeed endured, particularly in the gift of prophecy. So I want to take a minute to just look at that in depth. An argument can be made that the more conventional aspect of prophetic utterance is likely still a gift that is received from the Spirit today. You can think of prophecy as having two primary elements to it. A prophet was called by God often to foretell the word of God. In other words, to bring news of what was to come or to share a revelation that people did not yet have from a different prophet or from the law. That was one mode of effective use of the prophets in the Old Testament and even some in the New. The second mode of use for the prophet was the telling forth of things that had already been revealed to the people. So there's foretelling, in other words, telling forward what's going to happen or telling a new bit of revelation that God wants the people to have or forthtelling, which is really just taking what the people should know already, what they should be excited about, what they should be doing in their lives and obeying, and then telling them that again because they have not been paying attention to it. This is a gift that I believe still exists today, and you see it in pulpits across the world where faithful men are preaching the gospel, and they're doing it boldly. They're doing it without apology. They're doing it because they know it is the only means of truth that we can trust. What the Word does provide for us needs to be proclaimed to the world. It needs to be spoken with confidence and conviction. It needs to be declared. It needs to be given as an imperative, not just as a suggestion. We need men to be preaching the gospel of truth. And so I think to that capacity, there are still men who do this faithfully. And I think over the last 18 months, we've seen examples of this, like uh, Pastor John MacArthur. Um, he preached so boldly through the whole pandemic the importance of putting our focus and trust in Jesus Christ and did so even at, at the potential expense of fines and legal backlash uh, that his work in the gospel during that time cleared the way for other churches like us to now be less worried about the persecution that might be brought about us by the government and its legal, legal uh, devices. And that, that kind of prophetic utterance comes with consequences. So someone who might have the prophetic, prophetic gifting will also be afforded from the Spirit courage. They will also be afforded endurance, the strength to carry on even when others don't agree with their message, the message of the Word. And they will be afforded contentment as well. Because those who foretell the Word of God must be content in the Word of God and the message they proclaim because many they foretell it to or foretell it to, many of them will reject them. So being embraced by the masses, being popular, being respected, that's not something that is important to the, the man who preaches prophetically. What is important to him is that the Word of God gets out. It gets out right and it gets out with passion and with truth. We also might take a look at this ability to distinguish between spirits. Because while uh, this was often applied in, in, in times of the tongue speaking to figure out whether a tongue speaker was really speaking in a tongue that was to benefit the church or not, I think we also have this uh, ability today among some believers, the ability to distinguish through spirits. Not through the tongues necessarily, although that might come into it, but to see who is truly working of God and who is not. 1 John uh, 4, 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Exactly what nature of spirits is being mentioned here? If you are saved, your spirit should be submissive to the spirit of Christ, shouldn't it? If you're not trusting in Jesus, your spirit is prone to being used by the enemy. Just by nature, you're vulnerable to his manipulation and his power. 1 John, if you were to read more of that chapter, I encourage you to do so in your, in your times, of, uh, times of personal devotion this week. You would see that, is that there's not only one Antichrist that's opposed to God, but there are many Antichrists in the world, some of whom come trying to show themselves to be ministers of the gospel, but in reality are working against the true gospel. So how do we tell those who are fakers? How do we tell those who are truly of the Spirit of God and those who are counterfeits who are trying to manipulate the people of God to go in a direction God does not want them to go. We do that by spiritual discernment. We do that by testing the things that are preached and taught 
testing it by the word of God, that standard that is our yes and amen in Christ. There's overlaps here with the gifts of the mind. The ability to distinguish between spirits is the ability to identify false doctrine and to call it what it is. And, and there, are, there are some faithful people in the world today that are doing just this. Be cautious. Some of these uh, individuals are very worth uh, following and listening to. Um, but there are others, I feel, that are often hypercritical. And we have to be careful that uh, we don't become what is often called fruit inspectors, where we're trying to nitpick at every little thing that a ministry or a pastor does wrong. But it is beneficial to have folks who are willing to see a, a blatant error where somebody is preaching against the Scripture or manipulating his congregation in a way that is despicable to the Lord, and they're willing to call that person to task and to challenge them to show in Scripture why their actions are justifiable in the faith. So um, to some degree, this skill can be trained in each of us. Hebrews 5, verses 13 through 14 says, For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So we can train this up in ourselves to some degree. We can become more discerning individuals. But I do believe that some are given a strong ability from the Lord to do just that. They have an attentiveness to detail. They have a willingness to question without being hard-hearted skeptics. They have the ability not only to identify evil spirits or their works, but also to recognize the Holy Spirit and His good activity among the brethren. So how does this gift benefit the body of Christ? It doesn't. It doesn't if that person that perceives and identifies false teaching keeps it to themselves. It is one of those gifts that must be verbalized. It must be proclaimed. If that individual gifted of the Spirit sees the error, sees a spirit that is deceiving, is worthy of further investigation or, or care and carefulness, but if they are not willing to speak, they've done no good to the church. The ones who see it and are bold and use their gifts to benefit the body, they can be guarding the hearts and the minds of our brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus against the threat of de deception and against the threat of confusion. Because of its nature, this gift is often given to those who, called, who are called to serve God as, as elders. 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who needs not to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So Timothy is exhorted there to make sure that people are seeing the word as it needs to be taught, not as they want it to be taught. Now we're short on time. I really wanted to go through some of these supplementary gifts, um, but we might have to wait until we get into the book of Romans to get through those just Really quickly, those supplementary gifts are serving, teaching, exhortation, generosity, leadership, and mercy. And uh, don't fall into the trap of thinking that you need to know every single gift to identify the Spirit working in your life. Your spiritual gift might be very different than the gifts that are on these lists. It might be that the Lord has afforded you a musical talent has given you the ability to, to lead others in worship and a humble heart that doesn't get puffed up by doing that. And if that's the case, perhaps your spiritual gifting is in the musical realm. There are some people that are tremendous prayer warriors. Their gift is to care about the needs of the brothers and sisters in Christ and, and to pursue those needs in prayer, to lift them up daily before the throne. So I think there are many gifts that are not actually listed in Scripture. They're not completely cataloged for us. But anything that the Spirit might particularly bless you with the ability to do that could be of good use for the church, don't be bashful about using those gifts. Gifts provide both opportunities and obligations. They do not provide occasions for boasting or for pride. As the Apostle Paul warned in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, by whom, church? By the Holy Spirit, right? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? In other words, don't let your spirit-given ability, don't let that be a cause for you to think more highly of yourself than you ought to. Don't let that gift, that strengthening that God has given to you, don't let that turn into a cause for pride in your life, but rather let it be the cause for you to point to the Jesus that has saved you and the Spirit that has filled you and to rejoice in the way that you can now honor God the Father by obediently and faithfully 
integrating in the body of Christ and living a life of worship to his glory. With all that's going on in the world right now, it might be easy to forget that our local church is the prime avenue through which we are intended to work and apply ourselves to the spread of the gospel. It's easy to, to see the stuff that's going on in Afghanistan or the stuff that's going on in Haiti right now and stuff that's happened up in Canada and then just pour ourselves into a cause like that. And there's nothing wrong with helping those things out. In fact, I hope that as a church, we're looking at those needs and that we're seeing, God, how have you blessed me in this season to meet that need and to go, go above and beyond and to do more than what I've been doing because the need is greater in the world right now. But don't let your... Uh, asphyxiation on what is happening in the global sphere cause you to overlook the specific mission field that God has brought you to and connected to you to here at the church. That you are gifted to serve these people, these brothers and sisters in the Lord. And that doesn't mean you can't be a blessing beyond the walls of this house, but don't look past your brothers and sisters here for they are the ones that know you. They are the ones that can be blessed by you. They're the ones that have in turn been a blessing to you and a gift to you as you've walked and grown in faith. So love the church of God. And one of the best ways that you can love the church of God to the glory of God is by using the gifts that he has given to be a blessing to the brothers and sisters who are around you. Well, we're going to sing uh, one more song. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. And then let me give you a a couple of instructions here. As we close the service out in song, I'll give the benediction at the very end and send you out. If you are a member of First Family Church, we really want to ask you to stick around for a little while longer. I know we don't have the shortest services in town. That's by design. We love worshiping the Lord, and we don't want it to to end too quickly. Uh, But today we are asking you to stay a little bit longer uh, if you are a member of the church. If you're not a member of the church, um, we're going to be discussing some of the matters of church membership that pertain only to the people who are covenanted here as members. Uh, so at, at the end of the song, after we have the benediction, we'll ask you to, uh, to file out. You can still hang out with other believers up in the fellowship hall or hang out on the park if you're not a member. Uh, but members, if you'd stick around here, and then also we want to have you grab a, a, a voting slip because we're going to be doing a vote by, um, by slip today about some changes and amendments we're going to make to our Constitution and bylaws. So I'll give you more information on that at the very end. But let's all stand. And let's uh, sing a song of praise, and then we will send you out with the benediction.